message and I was super excited about it and my head almost blew up because I was thinking about so many different things and then um, I had it all ready to go and then in the middle of the night I woke up. How many of you are occasionally inconvenienced by the Holy Spirit in the middle of the night? But I realized uh, this is definitely, I can definitely not fit this all in today so it's gonna, it's not gonna be as long as it was originally scheduled. But today I want to talk about Genesis 2 and 3. We're in a series now um, called Genesis to Jesus, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And he is throughout the Old Testament. Last week we talked about the, the very first verse in the Bible where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, in Hebrew they read backwards. Well, we read backwards actually. But they read right to left And it says, in the beginning, God, and then there's this little two-letter phrase in there, et, which means alpha and omega. Who is the alpha and the omega in Revelation 22? Jesus Christ. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So Jesus is in the very beginning in Genesis and at the very end and throughout the entire Bible. Can you guys just greet our American Fort campus? Hi, guys. Oh, come on. You can give them a better round than that. Come on. Hi, guys. Yeah, we're partying together. So um, so today I, I'm going to do something a little bit differently. Uh, I'm going to take kind of the theme of a movie. So this is kind of a story I'll be going through Genesis 2 and 3, so I'll be kind of going back and forth in there. You know how in movies, like, they'll skip ahead, and then they'll show you the scene, and then they'll go back and show you that. So we're going to kind of do a little bit of that today in order to set this up as a movie kind of a theme. And I'm going to start out with the props, which is the trees, the two trees. And then we're going to go into the characters, the humans, who are the protagonists. And if you understand... In movies, they have the protagonist, who is always the what? Does anybody know? The good guy. Yeah, the hero. And then we're going to talk about the antagonist, who is the serpent. So we're going we're gonna to cover that. And then next week, we're going to go into kind of where the plot thickens. And we're also going to talk about the resolution and the solution that God has for sin. So would you just pray with me this morning so that I can honor God's word? Lord, you are the great I am. Hmm. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth, declare your glory, Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Lord, thank you that you've given us such a tangible means by which we can come to know you better. Lord, I don't know where we'd be without your word. Lost and confused for sure. 
I just ask you, Lord, that you would pour your spirit through me this morning. God, you would bring a spirit of wisdom and revelation to each of the hearers this morning. God, give us something practically applicable to our lives, Lord. Help us to know how to apply your word. Pour out your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about the creation. So today we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. We're already in chapter 2, so moving right along. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Remember that during the creation, when God was creating everything, he created it with a word. It says that he spoke and it came into being, right? He, everything that he created was by his word. But humans were by his breath. We're the only creatures that God breathed life into. And you know, there's so much symbolism in the Bible about breath, and I won't go into all of it today, but you know, even the names like Elijah, ha, right? Jeremiah, ha, that's breath. It means the, the breath of God. And God breathed his life into us, into the humans, so that we can pour out our praise back to him. We're the only ones that can have communion with God. Animals can't relate to God. I mean, I think God likes animals, specifically dogs. I think he really <laughs> likes animals. I don't know about cats. I think that comes after the fall. But um, <laughs> sorry if you like cats. Okay, speaking of controversy, so how many are cheering for the Cowboys today? Four of you. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see, how many of you are cheering for the Chiefs today? How many of you are cheering for the Steelers today? Oh, this seems like the Steelers are winning. And who's the last team? I forgot. Oh, yeah, Packers. That's a swear word in my house. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm a Vikings fan, so I've lived a life of disappointment. Yeah, yay! Got a shout-out from my Vikes next year. (laughs) We say that every year. Okay, anyway, back to this. Okay, uh, so in verse 9, it says, The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We spend a lot of time talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and today we will be talking about that a little more. But don't forget this mention here of the tree of life. Next week we're going to get into that a lot more, but don't forget the mention of that because he only mentions those two trees. He said he made all sorts of trees, but those are the two he specifically mentions. In verse 15, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you are sure to die. How many of you have ever raised children? You know when you tell them, 
you can touch everything else in your room, but do not touch the outlet. Where do you think the child is going to gravitate? Right? Or when the waitress, not just kids, it's not just the kids that do this, when the waitress sets down the plate and says, don't touch that, it's hot. (laughs) You're like, oh yeah, (laughs) just wanted to see how you defined hot. (laughs) But we do, we have that tendency, it's human nature to be curious and to want to touch that forbidden fruit, that thing that we're not supposed to touch. But this is um, God speaking to Adam. You notice Eve is not here yet. She hasn't been created yet. So God is telling Adam specifically not to eat of this tree. He didn't tell Eve. Well, it doesn't say that he told Eve. I shouldn't, I don't want to read anything into it, but it's specifically addressing Adam here. And this is also the very first commandment, right? Everybody always says, oh, be fruitful and multiply. A lot of guys like that one, but that's not actually the very first commandment. First commandment is don't eat from that tree. That's the very first commandment. So hold that thought, okay? Now, we're going to go on and we're going to talk about the humans or the protagonists. Genesis uh, Chapter 2, verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Okay, first of all, this is the first time that God is saying something isn't good. Remember back in in chapter 1, everything that God made, it would say, and, and God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. All these things were good. This is the first mention where God says something is not good. And what is it? What's not good? For man to be alone. It says, I will make a helper who is just right for him. Uh, Genesis 2.19 says, So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. Okay, so God's, you know, bringing the animals in front of Adam, showing him all the animals and... Adam's naming them. He's like, horse, cow, pig. I'm running out of names. Hippopotamus, (laughs) rhinoceros, (laughs) elephant, (laughs) platypus. Yeah. So he named all of them. And don't you think that the Lord was recognizing that there was a male and a female for each? I think God was using this to kind of Show Adam. Um, It says, um, the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. Now, when we talk about the word helper, um, this is actually a pretty weak translation. It really does mean helper, but it doesn't mean, like, now, no offense to anybody. I hope I don't step on anybody's toes, but we think of kind of like the teacher's aide or the busboy or the um, person who comes in and cleans up after somebody's puked in the hospital. You know, I mean, we think of that's the helper. But this is not really a good translation. A good translation or a better translation would have been like suitable companion, similar creature, co-equal, teammate, colleague, partner, collaborator, ally, co-worker. 
um, I, I will confess to you that when I was in college, I was a feminazi. I kind of, I was a little bit of a man hater, and the Lord really, really worked something deep in my heart and really convicted me of that. And it wasn't until I was, I had been married probably, I don't even know, probably like. 10 or 11 years, so my poor husband. So, I mean, I had a lot of bondage and a lot of issues and a lot of resentment toward men. And um, I, I will say, though, God has really set me free from that. And, um, and so I, I want to make sure that when I deliver this that you understand that I believe when we come into God's word, we need to come into it without a bias, I think too much of the time we read God's word to get it to confirm what we believe about something rather than going into God's word to see what does it really say? What is the real context? What, what, is, the, what is the true word of the Lord? So I'm going to read you this, um, this quote. It's from a website. I think it's, what is it called? I can't remember. Um, but I want to say that, that Eve was Adam's completer. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But it says here, when God calls Eve a helper, he's not saying that she will be Adam's inferior or that her work will be less important, less creative, less anything than his. The word translated as helper here is the Hebrew word azer. And it's a word used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to God himself. For example, in Psalm 54, 4, God is my helper or my azer. Or Psalm 30, verse 10 says, Lord, be my helper, my azer. Clearly, an azer is not a subordinate. Moreover, Genesis 2, 18 describes Eve not only as a helper, but as a partner. The English word most often used today for someone who is both a helper and a partner is co-worker. This indeed is, is indeed the sense already given in Genesis 1.27. Male and female, he created them, which makes no distinction of priority or dominance. Domination of women by men or vice versa is not in accordance with God's good creation. It is a tragic consequence of the fall, Genesis 3.16. Notice there's no hierarchy at this point. It's not that Eve is better than Adam, because sometimes people say, well, you know, God had to work it out so that he worked out the kinks, and then he created Eve. That's not the case. Uh, okay, so you guys have heard the joke, right, where um, God says to Adam, He's like, so I'm going to make this really amazing partner for you, and she's going to be awesome. She's going to be beautiful. She's going to do everything that you want her to do. She's going to, like, she is going to be your slave. She is going to be just everything that you ever envisioned. She's going to be perfect for that. And Adam's like, cool. How much is that going to cost? God goes, an arm and a leg. Adam's like, what can I get for a rib? Anyway, there's no hierarchy at this point, as I was saying. So, um, so you know, those scriptures that say that, you know, God is our helper, if we were to believe that this word helper means that Eve was the subordinate, she's the helper, she's the teacher's aide or the busboy or she's whatever, that would be like saying when we ask God to be our helper that he's our subordinate. 
and in no way do we ever want to go there, right? So uh, verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. It says, God brought the woman to the man. At last, the man exclaimed. Because think about this now. He's been doing the whole naming thing. And he's like, where's my female? You know? So he's so excited. He says, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is perfect. This is the first union, the first marriage. It's actually the first family, right? Notice there are no children there, but yet it's considered a perfect family. It says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And it says that woman was created from the rib of man, right? I've heard the saying, I'm sure a lot of you have heard it too, where it says that she wasn't created from his head so that she'd rule over him. She wasn't created from his feet so that she would be subservient to him. She was created from his rib so that she would be his equal. So I did a study on ribs and what the function of the rib cage is and what ribs do, because I was like, why the rib? You know, that, doesn't that seem a little bit random? You know, it's like, why not the elbow? Or why not the hand? You know, because the hand is a little more flexible. But it's the rib. And so the ribs, I discovered, have three important functions. Protection, respiration, and support. So the ribs protect the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and the lungs from any external injury. Um, The respiration, the ribs also assist in breathing when the intercostal muscles lift and lower the rib cage, facilitating inhalation and exhalation and support. The rib cage provides a framework onto which the muscles of the chest, back, upper abdomen, and shoulder girdle can attach. The diaphragm is also attached to the lower border of the rib cage. So number one, protection. I think I could be, this could be a stretch here, but I think that this is a a symbolic gesture that God has that says this is how women are supposed to treat their husbands. They're supposed to protect them. You know, I remember when I first got married. I went to this ladies retreat and there was this powerful speaker there and she rebuked us so harshly and she said, you young wives, you stop exposing your husband's nakedness. You stop gossiping about your husband. You stop tearing him down. And I was so convicted. Because I guess I justified. I thought it was okay to gossip about my husband to my friends because I needed to vent, right? Oh, man, I was so convicted. Wives, I'm talking just to wives now, so I apologize for excluding anybody from this. If you're single or 
divorced or widowed or whatever, I, I apologize, but I think it's so important that marriages are healthy so that the church can be healthy. And I think too many women do not protect their husbands from outside influences and even from themselves. And women, we are called to protect. Protect our husband's integrity, protect his honor, protect his name. The second thing is respiration. The ribs assist in breathing when the intercostal muscles, muscles lift and lower the rib cage, facilitating inhalation and exhalation. I think we are supposed to be the breath that breathes into our husbands that gives him that confidence and the courage and the inspiration that it is so important. You know, the, the tongue has the power of life and death. You know, with our words, we can build up and with our words, we can tear down. And I think it's, just a side note, it is not a spiritual gift to find someone's faults. <laughs> I know some of us have PhDs in that. We think judgmentalism is a spiritual gift. It's really not. And it really doesn't take that much effort. You know, it's pretty easy, especially when you live with someone. It's pretty easy to see their flaws. What's much more difficult is to help that person become everything that God created them to be and to speak words of life and hope and encouragement into that person. And the third thing I think that wives are supposed to do is to support. Can you guys uh, indulge me for a second? Can you stand up? I have a degree in music and philosophy because I'm super practical that way because I wanted to get a degree in things that you can get tons of jobs, <laughs> like philosophy, <laughs> so many jobs open for that. <laughs> um, but I used to teach vo uh, vocal lessons, and the very first lesson, I would start out teaching about breathing, because everything about singing is because of our breath. You can't, you, you know those times where you're singing <laughs> to the end, because you don't have any breath? So what what you do when you first start studying voice is you, you learn how to breathe. And the very first thing that you learn is, first of all, you stand upright, straight, like this. Like, imagine that you have a hook attached to the top of your head. Like, you're standing straight up, not like this. And then you have your backside tucked under, okay, so you're perfectly aligned. And then kind of roll your shoulders back like you have two buckets in your hand. And now, inhale. You feel that? Okay. Okay, now I want you to put your hands like right here. Now exhale. Breathe it all out. Now inhale. Do you feel it? Do you feel your the bottom of your rib cage expanding out? You feel that? When you breathe correctly, that's how you breathe. Now exhale. Now inhale again. La, la, la. No, I'm joking. <laughs> okay? That's the proper way to breathe. And think about this. If women are supposed to be that protection, but they also expand and allow their husband that room to breathe in encouragement and life and then to support 
that we as women are supposed to support. You know, when you breathe in like this, what happens is your lungs fill up with air. There's a, there's a muscle here called the diaphragm, and when it's in the relaxed position, it looks like this. But then when your lungs fill up, it pushes it down, and that's what pushes out the bottom of your rib cage, and that's what helps you to be able to sing. Okay, high-five the person next to you. Tell them they did an amazing job. <laughs> so I think those are the three things that wives are supposed to do. Now, husbands, I'm going to leave you alone today. You're welcome. <clears throat> okay, the next thing that we're going to discuss this morning is the antagonist or the serpent. just think it's so amazing that God would use a serpent. Uh, Genesis 3, it says, uh, verse 3, but it's actually verse 1. It says, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Come on, Eve. Come on, girl. Really? Did God really say that in classic serpent style? Now, remember, God told Adam. He, it doesn't say if he told Eve or not, but he specifically told Adam. And here the serpent, being shrewd, is creating doubt. He's lying. And he is causing a question of the character, not only of God, but someone else pointed out to me after first service, it probably caused Eve to question Adam too. Because Adam is the one who is supposed to reiterate this to her, right? And so it created all this doubt in her. And this is what the enemy of our souls continues to do to us today. He lies to us. He distorts the word of God, or what God has spoken to us, and he gets us to question God's character. He gets us to believe that God is not good or that God's word doesn't really say what it says. And that's what the enemy's doing to her right there. Now, let me give you a little background on, on the serpent or on the spirit driving him, and that is Lucifer. Lucifer even though this is the first time that he's really spoken of in the Bible, he had a history going into this. And it starts in Isaiah 14. It talks about him, and it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like what? Be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Now, this is not a contradiction. If, if you're Familiar with what it says in the New Testament, it says that we're supposed to be imitators of God. It says that we're supposed to be perfect as he is perfect. You know, it says that we're supposed to be like God, like the character, but it never, ever says we will be equal to God. Nor will any of us attain Godhood. 
that is contrary to the word of God. The word of God says, I am the Lord. There is no other. There are no other gods beside me. Amen? And it says, I am the Savior. This is in Isaiah. I am the Savior. And then back in Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Savior. Therefore, proving Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. But this is evidence right here that says that it is an abomination to the Lord if you think that you can be equal with God. It says that, that even Jesus himself, who was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became a servant. That's the kind of thing we're supposed to imitate. Um, in Ezekiel 28, it talks about the king of Tyre, but this is also... I'll, I'll, I'll prove to you that this is also talking about Lucifer. It says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. And now here's the part that proves that it's Lucifer. You were in Eden, garden of God. Now the king of Tyre was not in Eden, but Lucifer was. It said that he, a lot of people say that he was like the worship leader in heaven, that he was this amazing musician. It says, Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. Oh, I just lost my place. Sorry. Um, It says in verse 14, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God, and you walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Verse 17 says, Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. I really believe that pride, I mean, this is, this is the thing that motivated. This is the thing that motivated him to become fallen. This was the evil that entered his heart. And I really believe that pride is at the root of all other sins. Because pride causes us to either believe that we're better than we are, or it causes us to believe that we're less than we are, believing that we deserve better. Does that make sense? So if something bad happens to you, you're like, how could God let this happen to me? Because we think that we deserve better. I could say that about losing my husband or about my husband going to be with the Lord, I could say, if God's good, how could he, how could he take my husband from me? Right? And the enemy continues to lie and create pride within our own hearts to think, well, I deserve better, right? Or we become arrogant. But I really think that pride motivates every other, every other sin including fear, including anger, including greed, all these things you can trace back to pride. That's where evil entered into his heart. And he became the fallen angel, it says. And again, remember when it goes back and it says you can eat of any tree, but just not, not that one tree. And here it is. So every, everything was opened up to Lucifer, everything. He had access to everything, but it wasn't enough. He wanted to be better than God. He wanted to be exalted over God and to be his equal. 
Genesis uh, 3 verse 2 says, when Eve is saying this in response, so, so Satan, or the serpent, is, is asking her, come on, really? Is that really what God said? Come on. Causing her to doubt, causing her to, to believe lies. And she says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Some people like to focus on this saying that um, she added to the word, where it says that you must not even touch it. Because God really didn't, I mean, it doesn't say that he said that to Adam. But that doesn't mean that's not how Adam reiterated it. Or like, But why would you want to touch the tree if you weren't going to eat it? I don't know. Anyway, but God is saying you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Remember back to the very first commandment. Just don't touch that tree or don't eat the fruit from that tree. In verse 4, Satan says, you won't die. Duh. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and that you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What was the reason that Lucifer got kicked out of heaven? And so he's saying the same thing. Does this sound familiar at all? The very first lie is you can become God. You can become God. You can become God of your own life. You don't, all those rules, they don't apply to you because you can become the God of your own existence, right? You know, when Satan speaks, it's always a lie. John eight forty four says when he, and this is Jesus saying this of the enemy, when he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what happens in verse six? The woman was convinced. Satan lied to her. He deceived her. He caused her to doubt not only God, but also probably her husband's counsel creating that break in their relationship. It says the woman was convinced and she saw that the tree was what? What, what was it? Beautiful. It was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. See, this, this wasn't this hideous fruit that looked horrible. This was beautiful, just like sin, just like temptation. It looks so beautiful and holds out such promise. It says she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband, who was apparently with her, and he ate it too. So the guy stands there passively by while his wife is deceived by the evil one. Because the Bible says that she was deceived, but that he sinned. I do need to make an argument here for, uh, you notice it says fruit, right? It doesn't say apple. Everybody always thinks it's an apple, right? I think I can make a pretty strong case that it was coconut. (laughs) Amen? Except for the beautiful part. I think coconuts are pretty ugly. But um, Genesis 3-7 says, at that moment, what happened when they ate? Now, notice, 
she ate, right? And then he ate, and then what happened? Their eyes were opened. It didn't happen after she ate. It happened after he ate. And then they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Remember back where it said they were both naked and they felt no shame. They knew no evil up until this point. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. It's the recognition of right and wrong, of good and bad. And then their eyes were opened. So now they are familiar with evil. Their eyes were opened. So what did they do in response? They sewed together fig leaves to cover themselves. Anytime the Bible talks about any like fruit or uh, vegetation or harvest or anything, it's talking about the work of our hands of, or of, of works. And so to me, this is so symbolic that they felt shame, so they tried to cover it up with works, with their own works. They sewed these things together and covered themselves up. You know, the fall, this is called the fall, of mankind has affected every single human being from that day forward. There is not one person who has been exempted from this, right? Every single one of us. Anyone who has ever lied, ever had a negative thought, ever done anything, been greedy, coveted, jealous, gossiped, any of it, If any of you, any of us, have ever done any of these things, we are considered guilty before God. This curse or this fall has affected each and every one of us. And in Genesis 3, 8, oh, let me back up just a little bit. I want to say this because, oh, ooh, feathers. Um, You guys just think I'm nuts. But I want to just say, you know, Romans 7 talks all about how we know the good that we ought to do, but we continue to do what we don't want to do. And the thing we don't want to do, we always do. Did I just say that backwards? Okay. The thing that we should do, we don't. The thing that we don't want to do, we do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for his glorious gift in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Without the cross, we are hopeless and helpless. We are lost. It says in Genesis 3.8, it says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. This is what's called a theophany. Anybody know what a theophany is? A theophany is an appearance of God somewhere in human form or in angelic form or something. This is God was walking around in the garden that he had created. It says in the cool of the morning. He was walking about. So what did Adam and Eve do? Did they run over to God and say, hey, let's hang out? No. Now they had experienced shame, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, do you really think God didn't know where he was? The creator of the heavens and earth, he knew where Adam was. 
Genesis 3.10 says, And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Like, that's so random. Like, they had never known anything that was wrong with that. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now, do you think God didn't know? Of course he knew. Genesis 3.12 says, The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Not my fault. Your fault. You gave me the woman. The woman gave me the fruit. Not my fault. Right? Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? Uh, The serpent (laughs) deceived me. She replied, that's why I ate. So pretty much your fault, you gave me the serpent, the serpent gave it to me. The blame game, right? Blaming everybody else. And, I mean, how many of us aren't like that? Oh, the reason that I'm the way I am is because my parents were whatever. Or the reason that I steal from my company is because they don't pay me enough. It's their fault. Or you know how we justify our sin by blaming others rather than just owning it? Yeah. So these are the two responses to sin typically, is we either blame, blame other people, blame circumstances, blame whatever, and justify our sin, sew together these leaves and cover ourselves up, or you know how, like, say, for example, um, you've sinned against someone by lying. You've lied to someone, and, and you know you've lied to them, and, and the Holy Spirit is convicting you. You know that the Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness, because he's so nice, that leads us to repentance. But instead, because of our what? Why? What's at the root of sin? Because of our pride. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't know don't want to admit that we've lied or we've deceived someone. So instead, we cover it up with some works. Like we're like, oh, I'm going to be really nice to them. Or or I'm going to give them a present. Or I'm going to go to Starbucks and get their favorite drink. Rather than just going to them, am I offending you? Okay, good. (laughs) Love you. (laughs) But isn't that what we do? Is we, we come up with all of these things that we're going to do instead of just doing the most obvious thing, which is to confess our sin, to just get it out in the light, to humble ourselves. But why don't we do that? Well, first of all, because of our pride. But then secondly, and this is where I'm going to talk about marriages again, but I want it, it can apply to friendships and, and all relationships. But I think a lot of times we won't confess our sins one to another because we're so afraid of rejection or we're so afraid that we're going to be judged or we're so afraid that it's not going to be a safe place. I want to say, be a safe place for people to confess. Be like the Lord who is slow to anger, rich in mercy, gracious and compassionate. Be like that. Again, I'm going to talk to the wives. If there are things that your husband needs to confess to you, be a safe place for him to do that. Let your husband come to you. Don't nag him. Have a nag-free zone in your home. And don't use it against him. 
And men, same thing if your wife maybe has a problem with shopping, <laughs> a little too close to home. But if, if your wife needs to confess something to you, be a place where she can come and confess without judgment. Okay? You know, the two responses that we typically have to sin are we blame we come up with excuses rather than just owning it. We blame others, blame their circumstances, blame our past or whatever. But the second thing that we do is we fall into shame and we try to cover ourselves up with our own works or we cover ourselves up or we hide from God. And I know that I talk about this a lot, but Jesus Christ died not only for your sins, but also for your shame. Now, shame is the after effects of your sin. Shame is that feeling of guilt, but it's not the kind of guilt that's, that motivates us to do the right thing. It's a kind of guilt that tears us down because it says in Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, and what that means is that you have accepted his forgiveness that he offered for you on the cross. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are already forgiven. You have been forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean. That shame is the thing that keeps bringing you back and reminding you and telling you it's hopeless. There's no hope for you. You did it. You can't undo it. Forgiveness says there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is freedom. It says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus Christ went to the cross so that we don't have to live in condemnation, so that we don't have to live in shame that we can be free. And we keep ourselves so bound with our shame. When Jesus said, it says that he went to the cross scorning its shame. He died for, your, for the shame so that you can walk in freedom. We cannot believe how good God is. We cannot believe that he can truly forgive us. There is a part of us that wants to sew those leaves together and cover ourselves up and hide from God and try to act like we, we have to do it ourselves. But when Jesus is saying, I've done it all, I've paid it all, it is finished. That's the gospel. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ, who is God himself, humbled himself and became a human being and lived a perfect life and became the sacrifice and went to the cross for the sins of the whole world. If you are in Christ Jesus, you're free. You can walk in freedom. You don't have to walk in that condemnation and that shame and the blame that the evil one wants you to walk in. So can you stand with me now as we close? And we're going to have a baptism, so don't leave. It's going to be awesome. I just want to, um, we're just going to humble ourselves before the Lord, and um, I'm going to address three different kinds of groups. Those who are bound by shame, those who have fallen into blame, 
and those who are not in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to start with the first one. Let's bow our heads and go before the Lord. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that Jesus, not only did you die for our sins, for the sin of the whole world, but Lord, you died for that shame. Lord, you died for those memories and those those thoughts that come in and condemn us. Lord, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can be set free. If this is you, if you're a person who struggles with shame, you're always feeling shame, you're feeling guilt, can you just lift your hand up as a confession just to the Lord? Lord, we thank you again for the freedom, Lord, that you provide God, that we don't have to walk around in shame. We don't have to be condemned. We thank you that you have delivered us and set us free, Lord. And you see these people who are, who are coming before you, Lord. I pray that today it would be gone. That shame would be gone, Lord. They would walk in that acceptance and walk in that freedom that you offer. And we bless you, Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice on the cross. Now for the second group of people, those you, you realize that you've blamed others. You've blamed your parents. You've blamed your spouse. You've blamed your circumstances, whatever that is. If that's you, can you just slip up your hand as a confession to the Lord and just thank you, Lord God, that you, Lord, that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, Lord. Lord, thank you that you are so gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger and rich in mercy. And Lord, for for those of us, God, who have fallen into blame, Lord, into rather than just humbling ourselves and confessing our sin, we've, we've dumped it on someone else, Lord. Father, we just ask that you would forgive us, Lord, and you would teach us a new way to think. Lord, that we could walk in the freedom, Lord, that we can humble ourselves and we can confess our sins, Lord, and we will be safe. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that um, we we can move and live and have our being in you, Lord. In Jesus' name. And the third group of people, if you have never received that forgiveness that Jesus wants you to have, that Jesus provided for you on the cross. If you've never come into a relationship with the Lord, if you've never been born again of the Spirit, can you just raise your hand as a sign that you want to be a believer in Jesus Christ? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Well, Lord, we bless your name, Lord. We thank you for your Spirit. I pray you would continue to pour out your Spirit, Lord. Bless the baptism. God, bless the people that are, that are making this statement to you today. Just continue to pour out your spirit in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm Murph, and we really hope that you enjoyed this week's Adventure TV broadcast. We here at The Adventure have two main goals, to love God and to love people. And we hope that you felt that through this week's broadcast. If you would like to join us on Sunday mornings, we have services at 9 and 11, and also on adventurehome.org. Thank you again, and God bless. All creation worships you. All we never came to be. We'll bow before your majesty.